Today what we want to talk about is the overall importance of the incarnation and continuing our time in Philippians. So whereas last Sunday we looked at Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 through chapter 2 verse 4, today we want to continue in verse 5 of Philippians 2. And this is, many call this passage a great hymn of the faith. Philippians 2, of course, is one of the key Christological passages in the Bible. In the Bible we talk about four key passages in the New Testament that teach us about who Jesus is. So we have Philippians 2. It's three ones and a, uh, a two. So we have uh, John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, and Colossians chapter 1. Those all teach us about who Jesus is and give us key theology about who Jesus is. And so really, I want to ask you today, do you really, have you at Christmas time ever thought just of the significance of the incarnation, just in the, the, the sheer importance of this concept of the incarnation. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, in the USA Today, a few years ago, there was an article called uh, More Christians Mix in Eastern and New Age Beliefs into Their Faith. And the article simply says this, Going to church this Sunday, look around. The chances are that one in five of the people there find spiritual energy in the mountains and the trees. One in six believe in the evil eye. Certain Christians believe people can cast curses with a look. Beliefs that your Christian pastor doesn't preach. Chances are that one in five members believe in reincarnation in a way that has never been taught in your catechism class. That you'll be reborn in this world again and again. Elements of Eastern faith and New Age thinking have been widely adopted by 65% of U.S. adults, including many who call themselves Protestants and Catholics, according to a survey by the Pew Forum. You know, it's not that this surprises me, because we live in a country where, you know, frankly, people just make up their own religion. You look around, what do you think? And whatever I think about religion and faith becomes what my own religion. It, it's just that Christmas... We need to remember Christmas represents one of the most important Christian doctrines. This doctrine of the incarnation. This doctrine is essential to who we are as followers of Jesus and to what we believe. And in this world where all these ideas are flying at us and different people, everybody seems to believe something different about God and faith. It's important that as followers of Christ, we are grounded in what the Bible says about the truth of this doctrine of the incarnation. So you say, really, Dave, it's Christmas time. You're going to talk about doctrine. Yes, because Christmas is all about doctrine. The incarnation is all, is such a vital and important doctrine. And so as we turn to Philippians 2, the first thing we need to do simply is define the word incarnation. The word incarnation, meaning, literally meaning, in the flesh. The incarnation defines the act wherein God the Son took on an additional nature, namely humanity. God the Son took on another nature, humanity. Simply put, the incarnation means God became human. Now think about the intricacies involved, if you would, in, in the God-man. In this Jesus, this God-man Two natures, one being. Think of it. We, you know, when we think about the, incarna uh, the incarnation, we tend to think about Jesus in either one way or the other. We think about him sometimes as a, a human, you know? 
Like when you think of Jesus suffering for us on the cross, we think of him as a human. He had, he had to be human to suffer as our representative on the cross. So we think of him as human. But yet when we pray to God, when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, we think of him as God. And in our, even in our thinking, our mind sort of separates Jesus out. He's like either one or the other. How does this incarnation thing work? You see, if you think about the complexities of an immortal, eternal God becoming a finite human being. I mean, have you ever just thought about how that could happen? I mean, think of the intricacies involved in this. Um, if Jesus is God, how does God get hungry? I mean, he's in need of nothing, and yet we find Jesus hungry in need of food. How does that work? How does God sleep? I mean, Jesus slept. We read in the New Testament, there were times where Jesus slept. How does the God who never sleeps or slumber sleep? Or how is he wrapped up in a womb for nine months? I mean, it's truly amazing. Look at some of the pictures that I found. I mean, think of this. This is just a picture of a baby in womb. It was one of these awesome pictures. How does God do that? Wrap himself up into a woman's womb for nine months. Check out this next picture. Um, you can't see that one as well, but this is a picture uh, not too many days after conception. So if you go backwards even further, you, you think of the God of the universe in this. Or how about one more? We go back even further. The God of the universe started as living cells that divide and replicate. How does God put himself in that? Talk about blowing your mind. God became a man. And what's important for us to recognize is this started with sin. This happened because of sin. It's starting with Adam and continuing to us. God did this. He became this because of us and our sin. Big deal, you say, right? Well, the early church spent vast amounts of time on this subject. The subject of the incarnation. Because they wanted to get it right. They wanted to worship God and they wanted to do it rightly. So they spent vast amount of time trying to understand how God could become a human. And Philippians 2 helps us understand this. So today I want to do two things. I want to try to understand the incarnation together. And then I want to together see how we should follow the incarnate one. And so let's do this. Let's take these points in this order. First of all, let's talk about understanding the incarnation. In the first few verses of this uh, passage, we see this, this great hymn. A lot of people think that this was a verbal theology, a catechism almost, that was taught to the early church. Or Paul probably went around in the early church, the church of Jerusalem probably went around and taught this catechism to people. To, as people became Christians, churches are forming for the first time, they probably wrote this hymn, or it's possible that they even sang it as a hymn when they gathered. And so Paul in his letter writes it down to remind them. He reminds, reminds them that their attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then he gives us this great hymn. It says, verse 6, Who, being in very nature God... Jesus is in very nature God. This word uh, nature is a really interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word morphe, or you can kind of hear the word morph in that word, can't you? Um, I'm reminded years ago there was a Gillette 
shaving commercial. And uh, it was one of my favorite commercials because I was mesmerized by it. It was when CG technology was just kind of getting going and, and they would have different men and their faces would morph from one guy to another. I don't know if you remember this, but in the, the uh, period of about 15 seconds, there were like seven or eight guys and their face just kept shaving or changing and it could show that the razor could shave anywhere and anyone, you know, but it would just morph from one to the other. And sort of in our heads, when we hear that word morph, we think of, of that kind of commercial. But this word doesn't mean that. This word doesn't mean like change or more. It's not like Jesus just kind of magically came to this earth and then and, you know, sort of took on a human form. This word is more important than that. The NIV rightly translates this nature because literally the word, when we see the word form, we think of uh, an external appearance, but literally the word has the idea to do more with the innards. The idea of morphe has more to do with the essential nature of who a person is. So then we come to verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was in nature God. And this explains a lot about the person of Jesus. This is why we can see that Jesus has uh, these attributes of God. When he's w w walking around this earth, when he's interacting with disciples, when he's interacting with people, we see these attributes of God, which is why people were blown away by him. Jesus knew things. You know, I mean, I'm reminded of these great stories where Jesus stands up and he, he has power over the storm. Like, that's not something you and I can just raise our hands or stand up and command a storm, go away. I mean, you see these attributes of God coming out. One of our favorite stories in our family when my kids were little was the story of when, when they needed um, a tax to pay the authorities. And Jesus says, go fishing. Catch a fish. You'll find something in it. And so, you know, like they go fishing, they catch a fish, and out of that first fish they grab, there's a coin in its mouth. And here we see in Jesus this idea that Jesus knew that a coin was in a fish's mouth. He had these attributes of God that just blow us away. There were times where he knows people's thoughts, what they were doing and thinking. Jesus is God. Now look what else the text says about him. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. There's that word again. Jesus was in nature God, but he was also in nature of a servant, a human. This also explains a lot about the personhood of Jesus. This explains why he could get tired. And hungry. Have you ever thought about that? Like how weird is that that the God of the universe would need to be hungry or need to sleep? Or how, when Jesus is, you might remember the story of Jesus in the boat at the storm and he's asleep. Why would he be sleeping? Because he's a human. He increased in wisdom, the Bible says. He wept and he even died. Jesus was not just human. He was perfected humanity. He was no sin nature. When we say that Jesus was born of a virgin, this is of the utmost importance because Jesus could not just be another guy born of two normal people because every person in this world has a sin nature and Jesus would get that. He had to have a father from another place. The virgin birth is absolutely essential to the deity of Jesus. He's perfect humanity. The Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Jesus was one person, 
He had two natures, God and humanity. Christians tried to get their arms around this. For the first 400 years of the church, Christians are trying to get their minds around it, their arms around this concept. Well, how can Jesus be a person and be God? Especially since uh, there were people in the church, the Gnostics, who, that, to them, that these people that had infiltrated the church with this Gnostic heresy, to them, the idea that God and humanity could ever even touch was just offensive. And so the church is wrestling with this. How can Jesus be a human and be God? How is that even possible? And there were a lot of theories about this. One theory was that Jesus had these two natures that were sort of mixed together. So like, like uh, it's kind of like in Jesus, we, if this is Jesus, they, they sort of poured a little, don't slip on that. They poured a little God, right? And uh, you know, that, that looks pretty good. Some of you guys would like some orange juice. And then, uh, you know, some people think that in Jesus, in his nature, we got a little God and then we got a little humanity. And so I don't know if too many people who... Uh, would be excited about that. A little orange juice and chocolate milk. You might enjoy that on your cereal. Not I. Um, but some people think that. It's, he's sort of like this nasty hybrid. He's not really God and he's not really a person. He's just a mix and he's this weird 50-50 pioneer hybrid thing. And, uh, and, and, and that's what they think of Jesus. And, and a lot of people in the early church were teaching that. But the early church was very clear that, and Philippians 2 is very clear, that uh, this is not the case. Because in this case, Jesus isn't really God because he's sort of watered down. And he's not really a human because he's got sort of this in. And he, you know, who wants any of that? I'm not going to drink that. Um, but you see, Jesus is not a hybrid. Philippians is clearly telling us he's not a hybrid. Now, some people think of him rather sort, sort of like this, that, well, you know, in, in Jesus, we, we kind of have like a split personality thing going on. It's like God took, you know, the two natures of Jesus here, and he just sort of wrapped them all into one deal, and he put them all together, and here we have Jesus, right? And sometimes we see the God part of Jesus, right? Like the, you know, the orange juice side. And we're like, hey, you know, I'm Jesus. I'm God now. But then other times he's like schizophrenic, and he's like, now I'm a human. You know, um, like uh, the bad cop from the Lego movie. Where, like three of you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, you have to have an 11-year-old to understand that. All right. So, um, yeah, we think of, of Jesus as sort of like this what personality. Sometimes we see the God part. Sometimes we see the human part. But this is not Jesus. This is not what Philippians is teaching. Philippians is not teaching us that Jesus has these split personalities that come out. In fact, really... Probably liquid is the wrong way to think about Jesus. And the reason it's the wrong way to think about it, it's the wrong, because we're trying to talk about fusing two things together. But, but the concept of two natures isn't spatial. You can't think of it, well, you know, if we you know, take Jesus' head off and fill it up, we can only have God or we can only have human, and once you get to 100%, you're 100%. Uh, it's not that way at all. We think of Jesus taking on an additional nature. Natures aren't spatial. The classic wording of this and the way the early church talked about this was simply this. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He didn't lose any of his deity. He added an additional nature, humanity. Not in a schizophrenic sort of way. He just had two natures. 
And this is truly amazing because to do this, Jesus had to sacrifice something very special. Jesus set, sacrificed, he set aside his rights and privileges as God. This is what the text says. Who being in very nature did not, God, did not consider a God, equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself. This is so important to understand about Jesus. And this is truly amazing. Jesus didn't lose his deity. We see times in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't know. Where he says, that's not for you to know, that's for the Father to know. There are times where we see that Jesus doesn't know everything. Well, how could that be? Because when Jesus took on a human nature, the only way for this to work is he didn't give up his deity. What he gave up was his rights to use his deity. He set them aside. Can you imagine this? From eternity past, he had had omnipotence. He was everywhere, omnipresence. It was all powerful. He was omniscient. He knew everything. And he said, I'm going to set aside my rights to use all of that to become a limited, finite person. It was perfect submission to God. Jesus learned, the Bible said. So he chose to limit his knowledge and learn as a human would. He didn't know certain things sometimes. He limited his power. He was in perfect submission to God. Most certainly we see when he's hanging on the cross, could he have called down angels? Could he have exerted his power? He could have. They could have taken him off the cross. They could have vanquished his enemies. But he didn't. He chose not to use it. He submitted to people in pain and suffering. And Jesus became human for all time. I say this every Christmas because it blows me away every Christmas. When Jesus became a human, it wasn't as if he just took on this nature for 33 years. He was born, he did 33 years in the scope of eternity. 33 years isn't that really that long. Died, rose again, ascended to heaven. Then he got rid of his human nature, right? No. The Bible says he kept it. He still stands as our brother today. When Jesus became a human, he became a human for all eternity. He did that for us. Now watch how this works itself out. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is how this works itself out. In humility, he was God. He didn't have to do any of this, but he had the greatest humility. He sacrificed. He gave himself freely forever he, for others. He loved. He had submission. I love this. This is the Trinity in action. You know, this concept of three persons, one being. The Son submits joyfully and willingly to the Father. He did this. The incarnation he did all this. Why? Because the incarnation is proof that God cares. William Barclay said it this way. Jesus' coming is the final and unanswerable proof that God cares. That's the incarnation. The final and unanswerable proof that God cares. I don't know. Sometimes we get into a place where we sort of wonder if God cares, don't we? 
I mean, we just sort of wonder that. Like, life's beating down on us, and stuff's hard, and it's coming at us from all directions. And you know, you just had that feeling like, I'm about to drown, you know? When I was a kid, my brother used to pull me around in the pool by my legs. He'd pull my head underwater until I thought I was going to drown, and then he let me up again to take a breath, and then he put me down under again. And I just remember thinking, is a lifeguard not watching this? Like, he's going to kill me. And, uh, and I remember just feeling like if I could just get a whole breath. We just feel like that in life sometimes, don't we? We just feel that way. The incarnation is undeniable proof that God cares. So if you're ever wondering, why hasn't God shown up? Why am I stuck in this marriage? Why am I stuck in this financial disaster? Why did my life fall apart? Maybe you're stuck in a job you hate, or maybe you're trying to find a job. Maybe you're stuck in a, in a body that's just falling apart and breaking down. Maybe you just got bad news from the doctor. Maybe your kids aren't heading in the direction you want, or maybe you're just overwhelmed in life, and you think, God, do you even care? Jesus is proof that God cares. He cares about you. Because when you and I are stuck in our sin and messes, Christmas came. Don't ever accuse God of not caring. He cares more than anyone possibly could. He cared enough to become one of us. When you wake up each day, wake up to this thought. Wake up. God cares. I know it because of Christmas. I know it because God became one. He came to me. He cared about my sin. He cares about my marriage. He cares about my job. He cares about my body that's breaking down. He cares about my kids. He cares because the Creator became created. The Creator became one of His creation. The uncreated became one of the created. Not just because he cares. Um, so when my boys were younger, they played with a lot of Legos. I mean, we have Legos everywhere. Garage sale Legos. Legos here, Legos there. We still, we're keeping them because sometime Malachi will get old enough not to swallow them and he'll start playing with them too. But uh, we, we Legos. And the kind of stuff when they were younger that my boys would create just kind of blew my mind. Goofy, silly. Like, where did you think of that? But sometimes they'd create stuff that they're so proud of. They just, they, they, they thought, oh, that would be great. You know, this is amazing. And their imagination's at work and it's a creation of theirs. Never once did my children go, they may have thought it would be cool to live in a Lego world. Like this would be kind of cool for a little bit. Like if I could become a Lego person and live in the Lego world I created. But never once did they think, and then I could die as a Lego for my Legos. Like, who thinks that? that? Like, that's just crazy and stupid. Who would ever think that? God did. He became one of his creation. Enough to come and die for us. And the essence of the gospel is that when we were helpless and unable to move, God came to us. The incarnation isn't just a doctrine. It's an essential doctrine. And don't get this wrong. Don't get it mixed up. Don't blend it with a whole bunch of other weird religions. No, this is, is, is unique to the Christian faith. And it's hopeful. Don't make Jesus just into a nice guy who did some nice things. Don't relegate him to a role model. Don't, you know, look at the trees and see Jesus in your spiritual energy. Don't do that. Don't make him less than he is. 
Look to Jesus. He is God who would come to us. Understand the incarnation. Understand what God did for us. Understand that he cares and loves you immensely. And that is just right understanding. If you want to understand the incarnation, understand this. If you want right doctrine, understand this. One person, two natures. Right understanding always then should lead to right action. It should always lead to right action. It's not just enough to understand the incarnation. We also must change our lives because of it. Doctrine always leads to changed behavior. Right doctrine always leads to right behavior, or it should at least. So on the one hand, we see, understand the incarnation. Next, we need to talk about following the incarnate one. If right understanding leads to right worship, right worship can lead to right action. Everything we do is worship. How do we respond to this incarnation or this worship? Well, here we have these great transitional words. Whenever you're in your Bible and you see the word therefore, it's always an important word. I had a, uh, a professor once tell me that, you know, you're always supposed to ask when you see the word therefore, what's it there for? And, uh, and you look, uh, well, the word therefore always points us back and forward. It always links everything that was just said to what's about to come. It's one of these great linking words. Therefore, in light of this incarnation, in light of this example of humility of Jesus, in light of Jesus taking on another nature and coming and dying for us and being risen from the dead, in light of all this, it should matter. Now watch what he says. Here's how it matters. Watch what Paul, the Apostle Paul says. He says, first of all, obey. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, obey. In the context of what Paul's talking about here in Philippians, the obedience that he's talking about is get along. He's, tell, he's ta- telling the church, and I talked about this last Sunday, these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, were squabbling about something. They were fighting in the church. They did not have their eyes on the mission. Rather, they were focused on getting what was best. And they were focused probably on how they were offended. And they were focused on all the wrong that had been done. And he says, in light of this incarnation, where God humbly became one of us, be humble. In light of this, it changes how we live. Be obedient, he says. Obey, get along, obey. Resolving conflict in the body of Christ is not an option. It's commanded. Be humble. Obey. We should know something about this challenge. If you've ever felt offended or taken advantage of, it's so hard to humbly put others' needs before your own. It's so hard. Obey, he says. Now, it gets better. He says in the second half of 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, this is one of those interesting phrases. You know, we so often talk about how um, salvation is unconditional. It's all true. Grace, God gave us what we didn't deserve. True. This is great. We talk about, hey, have, have you believed in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Uh, we so often talk about this, and rightfully so. Paul says here something different. Not work for your salvation, Work out your salvation. It's simply what we're saying. Right doctrine results in right action. You want to say Jesus 
is God incarnate? It changes the way we live. Our salvation gets worked out, the Bible says. This is not just fire insurance. One of my favorite quotes is by Bonhoeffer. Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ because real faith works. It just does. The natural result of our understanding what Jesus did for us and placing our faith in him, the natural understanding of that is always a working out because faith is put into action. He continues here now. It's God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do you know how many times I've told that verse to my children? (laughs) You know how many times I need to speak that verse to myself? How many times that we need to speak it to each other? Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Why? Because our transformation is at stake. We should not be who we were yesterday or the day before. We should be being changed. This is the result of following Jesus. It's the result of the incarnation. Why do we talk about it all the time? Transformational relationships. Why is this one of the values that drives how we live, love, and give like Jesus? Because we understand that we're not supposed to be the same as we were yesterday. We're continually supposed to be living out the implications of the incarnation. We're supposed to be in relationships so that we can be transformed. How do we do this here? This is how we become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. And then it gets better. In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Oh, this is so important. Did you know that when you live out the implications of the incarnation, when you follow Jesus, when you are transformed, it makes a difference. Um, I've shared this illustration many times here at Waukee Community Church because it was such a powerful picture in my mind. Um, I often try to find constellations with my kids. I like to do that sometimes in the summer, look up. But, you know, even in Waukee, even though we're not in the city, yeah, you don't get much here, you know. I can pick out the Big Dipper, kind of follow the line, get the Little Dipper, you know. I can get the North Star. But other than that, like, it's like there's, you know, yeah, there's probably 100 stars up there, right? And uh, I've had the experience of kind of being in some place a little bit more removed, and you get to see more. But I've never had the experience like I had being in rural Africa. If you ever look at a map of the globe at night and see the city lights. Africa is called the dark continent for a reason. I mean, there's not much artificial light generated in Africa. And when I was there in Senegal with our team and we were taking the Jesus film out to the middle of nowhere, we drove and drove and drove in this bush taxi. It was just crazy. And we got out there and then we had to get in the back of a pickup and drive and there were no roads anymore. I mean, they're like, I'm like, how do you know where you're going? You know, the driver, because he's just in the field, you know, and he's just driving across and he's like, oh, I got it, you know. And, uh, and so we got there and we showed this film and afterwards we tore all the equipment down and it's nighttime and it's dark and we get everything in and I'm laying in this back of this pickup because my back hurts and I just happened to look up. And I've never seen stars like that. 
like not only, um, not only did the stars, like could I see, I could see, you know, if I felt like I could see whole galaxies, the detail, the trying to count that number of stars would be absolutely impossible. The detail that was out there. But as I looked and as I stared up at that, what I was amazed is how much light those stars provided. I mean, it was a small moon even. And the light that those stars provided in the darkest of places was unreal. And I just thought of Philippians 2. We're supposed to shine like stars in the universe. You want to live out the doctrine of the incarnation that God came to us? How we react and relate? Paul says, if you do that well, if you live this out, if you follow the humility of Christ, if you do this, you will shine like a star in the universe. And to shine, we must be transformed. It's not a ritual. It's not Christianese. As we shine, we are transformed. Friends, we got to understand this incarnation. And then we got to follow the incarnate one. Um, as I close, I'll just tell you this simple story. So uh, in my office, I'm, I'm in the corner office, and I got a big window. I think it's made out of plexiglass because when the big storm comes, it like bows, you know. And uh, I'm sitting there one day, and I heard this thunk. And I look up, like that was weird. I didn't see anything. About a minute later, I hear a thunk again. And I see a flutter. So now I'm just watching. I'm curious, you know, so I just watch. And there is this robin that apparently my glass is somewhat reflective on the other side that keeps seeing itself in the mirror and keeps trying to attack itself. So he just keeps ramming his head into the glass, like boom, over and over, boom. Like that robin is an idiot, you know? Someone tell him to stop. Boom, I keep hearing it. And, and so, uh, you know, I got to be honest. This, m- mostly, I thought, where's a cat when you need one? Because it was getting really annoying. But I never occurred to me or never thought, gosh, I wish I could become a robin so I could speak robin to this robin and tell this robin to stop being an idiot, you know? Like, it, I never wanted to do that. I just wanted the robin gone. How easy would it have been for God to go? Boy, I created this thing, and they are super annoying. <laughs> like, where's a cat when you need one, right? How easy would it have been for him to do that? But he didn't. He stepped into our shoes. The infinite became finite. The God of the universe became one of us. For us. He lived amongst us. Seeing the sin around him, seeing the devastation, living amongst it, he walked in our paths, in our shoes. And then when it came time, in his perfect time, he gave himself for us. This is the incarnation. And you ought to walk here, out of here today simply doing two things. One, being grateful. You ought to walk out of here. You ought to wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, you love me this much. Thank you. And then you ought to walk out of here today and you ought to go, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to follow. I want that to change my life. I don't want to look like selfish old me anymore. 
I want to look like somebody who looks like Jesus. I want to be changed. This is why we do everything without grumbling and complaining. This is why we shine like stars. Because this message is powerful. Let's pray. I want to ask the ushers to come down this morning. Uh, we're going to take our offering here in just a moment. And if you haven't filled out your community card, I would invite you to do that and put that in the offering. Heavenly Father, God, as uh, we come to you joyfully, thankfully, let us be changed. Let this message of grace that you, God, would do this for us, let it change us. Let us be more like Jesus. Let us live like Jesus. Let us love like Jesus. Let us give like Jesus. Change us. We love you. We simply ask for this. In Jesus' name, amen.